From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking with scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as visiting public figures and guest speakers to the UGA campus. The Victorian-era art critic John Ruskin wrote widely about art and architecture across the 19th century, describing buildings, materials, workmen, and architects, but also the viewer's role in understanding, appreciating, and enjoying the world around us. Joining us on this episode of Unscripted is Yale University Professor of Art History, Tim Berenger, who specializes in British art and art of the British Empire. Dr. Berenger is visiting UGA to deliver the Shuki Shaheen Lecture in the Lamar Dodd School of Art. His talk, Why We Need Ruskin Now, argues that revisiting the interconnected readings of nature, art, and education by British thinker John Ruskin can illuminate our relationship to images in the present era. Dr. Berenger, welcome to Unscripted. It's good to see you. Good to be here. As I mentioned at the top, Ruskin had quite a bit to say about architecture's form, origins, and effects on us. But he also left quite a bit of writing about how we should think about our own role and responsibilities in thinking about the built environment. Yes, he did. I mean, he's not really just an architectural specialist. And that's the exciting thing about Ruskin is he's someone who sees architecture as part of the world, as part of the lived experience of the world. He sees historic architecture as um, uh, as a manifestation of uh, cultures of the past that we can then understand. But he sees it almost as a book that we can read, as something that has meaning for us in our lives today. Um, and I think Ruskin was was also interested in the relationship between nature and humanity. So architecture is one of the ways in which that's mediated, that relationship is is, is understood and is, is, is lived with. But he's much more than just someone who's interested in architectural style. He's interested in human life. And ultimately, What's extraordinary about him is that he tells us that art and architecture are essential to hu humanity, essential to our humanity. So his thinking is on a much grander scale than most people who write about architecture who are interested in floor plans and elevations and, you know, neo-Gothic. That stuff's small beer compared to what Ruskin's really interested in, which is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive? Indeed, and yet he uses all of the elemental forces of architecture to get us to a place to understand these broader concepts. And uh, you mentioned his writing, I mentioned his writing, you mentioned the book, and I'd like to just <laughs> jump in on one of them, which is Stones of Venice. And there's a lot of 150-plus-year-old amazing stuff in this book, um, including a lot of original drawings of Venice by the man himself. Yes, uh, he spent years in Venice um, just looking. And his research method was not what most of us think of as research method. Well, of course, now it's just Google, but it used to be going to a <laughs> library, reading. And he did, he did that. But what he, re he really understood architecture by sitting in front of it for in front of a building like St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice for hours and hours, days, weeks with a pencil, with watercolors, studying the facade of the building, studying the pattern, studying the stone, to allow it to speak. So the stones of Venice actually spoke to him visually first. And then his mode of interpretation was to think through the meaning of that. And he was also, he wasn't just interested in 
looking at this as if it was a, a new building and sort of imagining how it originally was. He also said he was interested in what he called the golden stain of time. Mm. So he was interested in how the buildings had changed over time as well. And the, the thing that absolutely drove him crazy was when the contemporary Italian authorities thought, you know, this is looking a bit shabby. Let's put some new marble on it. Let's regild it. Let's make it look fancy. Um, and he felt that that was a, a, a barbaric way to treat a building that had a biography like any person carries in their face the experience of the years they've been alive. So, I mean, I think the idea of looking slowly and thinking visually, uh, uh, those are probably two of the things that Ruskin gives to us. It's funny, you think you talk about time and the slowness of time and years. <laughs> he dates the decline of Venice to 1418. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, probably if we were, you know, sitting around a, at, a, at a bar, you know, we could imagine ourselves speculating when American society went into a similar decline. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could I could put a date on it for Britain. Um, I probably shouldn't do so live on the radio. But, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's that's a really interesting. What he what he was thinking about with that was his underlying claim, which is a really interesting one for us to think about which is that good societies, societies that are morally healthy and economically healthy and ethically healthy will produce good buildings. And that you can read off from the building the moral health of the society that produced it. So, uh, and that's sort of a Victorian sounding thing to say, but actually you know, he believed that Gothic architecture, which belonged in the sort of late medieval era, actually spoke of the freedom of the individual to create under that, situ that, that system. Whereas neoclassical architecture, where everything has to follow a, a very sp strict specified rule and all of the angles are precise and all of the circles are perfect, uh, the kind of uh, uh, inspiration of, of ancient Rome and Greece that was found in the architect Andrea Palladio, for example, it's Palladio then who is making the decisions, not the guy who's carving the um, the front of the cathedral, whereas he says, in somewhere like St. Mark's or a Gothic cathedral in France, Chartres or York Minster in England, the decision as to what that particular bit of the front of the cathedral looked like lay in the hands of the man with the chisel who made it. So he says, classicism is almost like working in a factory. It's industrial, it's precise, it's cold, it's heartless. Gothic is alive and warm and human and imperfect and barbaric and crazy, but but alive and mm -hmm. true. So this is you know this is what he discovered by looking. It's amazing, really. I mean, that itself is a really is an incredible insight to me. But when he when he was when he's speaking about the decline of Venice, he presents evidence of the decline, and he has great confidence in us that we can understand what he's talking about. His evidence starts with a testimony borne by particular incidents and facts to a want of thought or feeling in the builders, from which we can, con can conclude that their architecture was bad. And second, which he's quite confident again, he can make us feel the sense of a systematic ugliness in the architecture itself. Now, you're right, that's Victorian era language. And while it's from the 1850s, that sort of hot, critical forthright forthrightness also reminds me of Robert Hughes. 
Yes. Well, I think actually someone like Robert Hughes, who was, you know, a kind of Cassandra-like voice, you know, denouncing the (laughs) terrible decadence of the present day. Uh, He was an Australian. For for those of you not familiar with him, he was an Australian critic who came through in the sort of 60s and by the 1980s was a very dominant voice. He was the art critic of Time magazine. And he wrote a book, which I read when I was a kid, uh, The Shock of the New, which actually was one of the things that got me into this game. Ah. Um, reading and listening. And, and actually TV, he did a series of TV programs, terrible haircut, you know, right, terrible right. shirts. But the, the language was the same kind of language. It, it was a criticism which was ethical and which used the full power of the English language to muster the forces of civilization against the forces of barbarism. And that was, that was really, it was great stuff to read. It, yes, indeed. It's very elevating. And so it's accessible, but it also speaks up to us. For example, Ruskin talks about balancing signs of affection with signs of intellect, which man leaves upon his work. The affectionate part is shown in decoration as opposed to structure. And decoration may indeed be lovely, but two things are needed. First, that the affections be vivid and honestly shown. And second, that they be fixed on the right things. They're, they're not that's arbitrary. Great. Yes, that's great. Well, that, you know, that's so, uh, you know, as, as any, any art student who's had a crit of something they've made that they thought was absolutely the most expressive and powerful thing, and they, you know, the, the visiting artist comes in and says, yeah, but it's, the structure's a mess. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's how do you balance feeling and intellectual control? That's the kind of point that he's getting over there. And, and actually his own writing, sometimes spills over that boundary himself sure. in, into this sort of purple prose where he overdoes the language. But he usually pulls himself back to the main point, you know, and, and so he's always concerned that artists should do the same, should, should have a kind of clear vision of what they're doing, even if they love the detail and the expressive moments, that they should really have a, a clear project. So that's, it's typically... You know, every every couple of paragraphs of Ruskin contains some kind of nugget that you can take out into everyday life, and that you just you've just raised one. So. Well, I, and I've got plenty of them. But the thing is, so much of talking about art and architecture can seem exclusive, and people shut down and they and they don't think that they can, should, or might have an opinion. And he also addresses that. And and this is to me, this is where things can get interesting. Ruskin says it's necessary. It's necessary, imperative, even to teach men to speak out and to say what they truly like, and second, to teach them which of their likings are ill-set and which are just. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, well, Ruskin did have a fairly firm sense that he was the one with the ultimate call on that. You know, well, he, someone uh, needs to, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, he was completely authoritarian. And, and uh, <laughs> if you were Ruskin's student, that was, that was tough. Right. Um, but, you know, as usual, in there is a nugget of something true, which is don't just say what, you think your listener will want you to say and don't just say what you just read in the New York Times and repeat it or, or Fox News or whichever it is. Right, I mean, right. and, and so think for yourself and have the guts to speak up for it. And that's true of, you know, what artistic, uh, you know, what, what art and architecture um, you believe to be of good quality. But it's also true of political and ethical matters. Just uh, to develop your own opinion. Yeah to figure out what it is you like. I mean, he speaks directly to that point. Yes, he does. And, um, you know, he was a brilliant teacher. Uh, He taught at the Working Men's College, which is a really extraordinary place for an elite, you know, wealthy man. He didn't need a job. He had 
private income, but he chose to go late uh, after work, so you know after six in the evening, to this this um, kind of utopian art school set up by some of his friends, mm. uh, the artist Ford Maddox Brown, and among them and Christian socialists in London in the eighteen fifties, and working men could come from the factories and learn to draw. And he was extremely patient and also inspirational. Um, but also he listened to them. And one of the extraordinary things about Ruskin is that he could be very dismissive of, uh, you know, uh, elite critics that he disagreed with. But if he saw a guy who'd spent his day, you know, making cogwheels in a, in a machine tooling factory, looking carefully at nature and thinking hard about, you know, philosophical ideas, he would listen to that to that man, even if that guy was in ragged clothing and couldn't express himself in, in highfalutin language. So Ruskin actually was a good listener. That's interesting. Is that where part of that, uh, you know, sort of adamance about developing opinions or originated? Or I guess that maybe it was fed by that. He already had that point of view. Well, he was never an orthodox thinker. You know, he never did the... Um, uh, sort of, I belong to this school, I belong to, you know, I'm a student of X, Y, and Z, I belong to this tendency. Mm -hmm. He was always himself uh, kind of uh, you know, on the outskirts of, of, of contemporary thought. So when he heard another voice like that, you know, uh, if it chimed with his beliefs, um, you know, he was, he was extremely sympathetic. He was, he was uh, and encouraging. It sounds odd that he would have been open to uh, the workmen of his time, just as a lot of people in our contemporary society might wall themselves off from the workers around them. Yes, and I mean, the art world, um, you know, now is just as elitist and exclusive as it was then. You know, you, you, you've got to go in your fancy outfit to the opening and, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's all about who you know and, and so on. So, I, I mean, I think he was always very skeptical of that kind of, that kind of sort of posturing. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills from languages and literature to biological sciences build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to become informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. We're back for more of our conversation with Yale University Professor of Art Tim Barringer on how Victorian-era art critic John Ruskin offers an expansion of art historical discourse to embrace urgent questions of modernity. You know, he was very open to meeting a range of opinions um, and... He didn't play the, for example, he was totally uninterested in party politics. Mm. He wasn't going to sign up for any kind of orthodox political organization. Okay. But he wrote this extraordinary, uh, extraordinary series of letters, public letters, printed letters to the working men of Great Britain called Fors Clavigera. Now, that's a very strange name, but it actually, it refers to the idea of making a nail um, the idea that the nail maker is is an important man in society. Um, so, uh, you know, the idea that he would bother to write regular letters to working guys, you know, which philosopher now 
uh, which art critic is actually addressing himself principally to people who work in factories. You know, it's, I don't think anyone. No, no, absolutely not. And uh, Forrest Clavigera is, uh, they were open letters and then he published them as pamphlets. That's right. The official full title was a, of the project was Forrest Clavigera, Letters to the Workmen and Laborers of Great Britain. And, and this is, comes after decades of work at work as a historian and art critic, as you say, because he had come to believe that the arts of his own age were, generally speaking, far less than they should be. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he was generally not impressed with what he saw. I mean, he was impressed with just a few brilliant artists like J.M.W. Turner, the landscape painter. Right. And a lot of his life was spent explaining to the world that Turner wasn't just a crazy, you know, out of control sort of lunatic, which is how he was portrayed by the press at the time, mainly, um, but that he was a visionary genius. So once he picked something to admire, he got behind it with passion. But, you know, he couldn't really bear the sort of paintings of dogs and portraits of you know, wealthy people, which was what you saw on the wall in an art exhibition in 1850. Mm-hmm. But he also didn't leave the art as bad or in unimpressive on its own. He said that it was uh, it was a result of deficiencies that were inevitable byproducts of a corrupt system of political economy yeah. that promoted profit for the industrialist above all and enforced impersonal efficiency and productivity over the flourishing of makers and craftsmen. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely. Um, But we separate these things, and he thought of them as one thing, this whole idea of political economy of art. Yes. I mean, just that phrase, political economy of art, is a a group of words that don't normally get mentioned in the same sentence. Right. So he saw the connection between the way we organize our society and the... uh, inherent unfairness of it and the kind of art that gets produced. He also thought that art and architecture could leverage that, could actually make it better. But in the end, it's interesting, if you look at the the trajectory of his career, he started off as an art critic writing a book called Modern Painters about Turner. And that book, by the time he got to volume five, had shifted into a much more general book about art and society. Then he started looking at architecture and society. But then suddenly in 1860, he started writing what he called political economy. And the economist said, this man is crazy. It's ridiculous. (laughs) He's trying to say that we shouldn't be maximizing profit for shareholders. I mean, it's insane, obviously. (laughs) Um, He's thinking we should be thinking about the value of life uh, and and the the, the enjoyment of work, which is obviously the most ludicrous idea as far as economists were concerned. Hippie. Yeah, exactly. So, and of course, a rich one as well. So right. he didn't have to actually do any of this himself. But, but so he put the things together, political economy, art. And that's a kind of catastrophic juxtaposition for orthodox thinking about economy. Because if, you know, the growth of capital is not the main thing. In fact, if it's just a waste of time, if your life is worthless and without imagination, then the whole edifice of the stock market and of political economy, as it was known then, economics, as we call it now, same, the same discipline, um, then it's all, it's all based on, you know, it's all built on sand and the whole thing is going to collapse. So Ruskin was treated as a genius of art criticism who's just got out of his depth. And they tried, they really patronized him. One, one of them said, reading Ruskin on economics is like being screamed at by a mad governess. Right? <laughs> um, but of course, you know, he planted the seeds and, um, 
you know, w- without taking our conversation off track, what really interests me is who read that book unto this last. It's a little pamphlet. It doesn't even have any illustrations. Mm. And there's almost no reference to art and architecture in it. It's where Ruskin decided to kind of get rid of the purple prose and the fancy descriptions and just come down to the core of it. And it's a little pamphlet, a tiny little book. And some years after it was published, it was someone was reading it on a train in South Africa, just a, just a, a random person. We don't even know who it was. And the guy sitting opposite him was a young lawyer, <laughs> a young Indian lawyer, very successful middle class man, suit and tie, very, very brilliant. Uh, you know, he was a lawyer. Uh, and he said, could I borrow that book? And by the end of that train journey, Mohandas K. Gandhi had decided to give up his life as a lawyer and to embrace what Ruskin had revealed to him, which is the fact that it's the life and labor and enjoyment of the world and the love of the world on the part of every individual, which is more important than winning a case in the law court, making a ton of money and you know investing it well and coming out with loads of cash, which is sort of where he was when he got on the train. Um, this toned into a lot of other beliefs that, that Gandhi brought from his Indian background. So it's not just Ruskin, but and, and anti-colonial and this Hinduism and all sorts of other things. But nonetheless, it was the spark which actually set off Gandhi on his renunciation of essentially capitalism and his return to the village and his return to hand making things. And that brought down the British Empire. Eventually, it, because it, it's a peaceful form of resistance, which ultimately was so powerful that it united the peoples of the subcontinent of India against the British. Um, you know, so so this little book, The Mad Governess Screaming, actually had world historical implications. Um, and it's an extraordinary book to read. Uh, my students always start reading it thinking, well, you know, isn't he supposed to be talking about painting? Where's the, where's where's St. Mark's? Where's the Venice? And by the end, you know, there's this sense that we've just been through a kind of profound journey. It's only a couple of hundred pages compared to some of his other things. That's short. But it takes you on this journey to the heart of, as he says, what is wealth? Uh, what is wealth? And, you know, you could say, well, it's, it's my savings account. It's my house. It's my car. And he says, no, it's not that. There is no wealth but life life itself in all its richness, in all its uh, aspects of feeling and love. And once you think that's more valuable than, you know, Bitcoin, then you're sort of starting to side with Ruskin and Gandhi. And that's a very interesting moment of thinking. It's a liberating spark indeed. Once you free yourself from what is so obvious and not debatable, everything's on the table. Exactly. And maybe the table's beautiful. Yeah, luckily. Well, and that's the other thing Ruskin would say is you can probably understand the whole of political economy by looking at the table. You know, so he says in, 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 in the Stones of Venice, he, he's, he's going on about a Gothic cathedral. And then he suddenly says, he, he sort of grabs you by the collar and says, look around this English room of yours. It's an extraordinary thing to say to the reader, but you're sitting there innocently in your dining room reading this book. And suddenly Ruskin is screaming at you, look around the room. And look at the, what he says, the perfect polishings and the metal fixtures of your house. And you're so proud of them because they're shiny. And he says, think of the slavery that went into their production. Now, 
of course, slavery has very specific contexts, um, and 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 he's he's using it metaphorically to mean that anyone whose whose freedom is taken away is enslaved at some level, um, and that table manifests the loss of freedom of the man or woman who made it because they weren't thinking about making a table a beautiful table. They were thinking about doing a shift in a factory for six hours and then there was a steam whistle that said start stop and you get paid minimal wages and you know that's the slavery so absolutely it can seem old-fashioned today to think about that and yes and yet it's very contemporary these are modern issues these are forward-thinking issues that to a great extent we've we've either left to the side or we've yet to get to them yeah i think that's true and and the other thing that he did was to bring to the foreground the, the issue which now is like out of the window, which is the issue of e- ecology. Um, and Ruskin understood right from the beginning that the problems in society are the cause of the problems in the environment. So um, when I first read Ruskin, I didn't really see that because, you know, in the 80s, we weren't thinking about that. We were just a little bit interested in acid rain. Mm-hmm. But the concept of global warming and, and of, of environmental despoliation was down the list for us then. And I didn't notice it in Ruskin. But if you read Ruskin now, you realize that all along, he, he wrote this extraordinary essay called The Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, mm. where he describes himself typically looking. So he always does it visually first. So he's looking at a cloud and he's thinking that cloud is not natural. And he's in the country, English countryside, but he's only 20 miles from Manchester where the factories are. And he's watching this cloud of carbon. And he said, I can see in that cloud dead men's souls. Hmm. And he's not actually looking at a cloud of industrial carbon. But of course, it has killed people. It's killed people in in the industrial setting, but it's now floating over and turning into acid rain and causing, you know, uh, causing climate change. So he actually visually saw what we are only beginning to understand, which is the processes by which industrial carbon is choking the planet. Um, And he saw that in the 1850s. So uh, that, I think, is really remarkable. And he connected it to the way we organize our lives. Um, And that's something that environmentalists are only now really beginning to understand. You know, if you're going to eat loads and loads of meat, you're going to produce lots of gases which are going to kill the planet. So you know, are we prepared to change our, our lives um, if you insist on using, you know, c- carbon fuel transport? It's going to kill the planet. Are we prepared to change? He was saying that in 1850. And I've only been thinking it for the last 15 years since I read the newspaper, you know. Mm-hmm. It's our reckoning. And this is what he was on to 170 years ago is that these issues are inseparable. And maybe that is one of the reasons why we need Ruskin now. Tim Berger, thank you so much. This has been an excellent conversation. Really fun. Great pleasure. Thank you.